some of you remember stories from your childhood that have been told to you. One was written way back in the 1800s by a guy named Hans Christian Andersen. It's called The Emperor's New Clothes. And it's a story about an emperor who was very vain, and he always wanted to dress in the finest clothes, the latest fashions. But he was deceived. Seems that there were these two weavers who came in promising to make him the most elegant, the most outstanding, the most regal suit of clothing that was possible. And it had one special feature that no one else had ever brought up before. And it was this, that those who were ignorant and stupid could not even see the clothing. And so the emperor was pretty impressed. He decided to have them make him a suit of clothes. And then after a period of time, they came back and presented to him this suit of clothes. In fact, it was nothing. They hadn't made anything. And yet, because they had said those who, who uh, were ignorant and stupid couldn't see these clothes, then the king certainly wasn't going to let on that he didn't see it. And so, they presented nothing to him, and they put nothing on his body, and then he decided he would go out and show all his royal subjects how regal his new clothing was. And so he went out on the town and all the townspeople lined the streets and, and they, they figured something was wrong, but no one was willing to say anything. Until one little boy spoke up from the crowd and he said, but he isn't wearing anything at all. And it was at that point that people in the crowd began to chime in the same refrain. He, he's not wearing anything. He's not wearing anything. And here's how the story ends. I want you to hear this. The emperor shivered, for he suspected they were right. But he thought, this procession has got to go on. So he walked more proudly than ever as his nobleman held high the train that wasn't there at all. Okay, cute little child story, but but why bring it up in a sermon? The answer is pretty simple. I have a feeling that many people who grew up in church hearing stories about a talking serpent, walls of a city that fell down simply because an army marched around them, a giant being killed by a shepherd boy with a slingshot, and 5,000 people making a feast off of what amounted to really a little sack lunch that many of us feel maybe a little bit like that emperor. We hear the world tell us over and over and over again that what we believe is fake, that what we believe is more like make-believe. And as we go through our lives, as we march along on our little parade of life, we may have this nagging suspicion, this question that lingers in the back of our minds, could they possibly be right? Could what I believe be nothing more than make-believe? After all, I've never seen God. How can I believe in something that I can't see? How can I trust in 
rely on something that is for all intents and purposes invisible. Now, as children, we didn't have that much problem with believing what we couldn't see. For us, monsters really did live under the bed. And fairies showed up after we lost a tooth and exchanged that tooth for money. The price has gone way up, I understand, these days. We believed in bunnies that came sometime during the night before Easter and left baskets of candy. We believed in a jolly old elf that showed up towards the end of December and put presents under the tree. We didn't have any trouble as children believing those things. And even our prayers were different as children. Such innocence, such expectancy. We had an incident uh, when we were in Savannah. We were on our way to eat lunch after uh, a worship service, and we came up to a traffic light, and there was an accident across the way. And so we stopped, and we prayed for what, whatever was going on. We really didn't know, but we prayed about it, and then we made a right turn, and we went on to lunch. That night, when we were putting the kids to bed, put Jackie to bed, and we were right by her bedside, and she was praying her prayers, and she asked me, she said, who was the person that got in the accident? And I said, well, I don't know, but that's okay because God does know. And she began her prayer, dear God, who was the person in that accident? Innocence. Expectancy. We'd moved here. We hadn't been here too long. When Jay got, I don't know if it was birthday or Christmas, uh, he got a purple, uh, it was a styrofoam airplane, but it actually had a, an electric motor in it and a propeller, and it even had a little remote control thing that you could get it out and, and fly it around. And so he got it, we took it, uh, we took it out, we got it charged up, we took it out to a, a, an area we thought was a fairly wide open space to try to fly this thing around. I mean, trees were off in the distance, but really they were no problem because, you know, dad was going to be taken in a, on its inaugural run anyway. Plane goes up, it's flying like it's supposed to, it's a styrofoam plane, didn't take much wind, and off it goes into the top of an oak tree. So, we walk over to the tree, we look up, we can see it way up there, I'm not going up after it. And so, we're thinking, what do we do? Now, as a dad who's a pastor, I'm like, well... Let's pray. And so we stood there at the base of that oak tree, and and we prayed that somehow this this plane was going to come down. And I prayed with all the confidence I knew how to pray with, but can I tell you the truth? On the inside, I wasn't very confident at all. It was wedged up there pretty good, it looked like. And so we went home. And the next morning, we get up and we go and we check on this plane. It wasn't in the tree. It was on the ground, right next to the trunk of the tree, no worse for the wear. Jay walks over, and he picks it up, and he looks at me, and he goes, thanks, Dad. (laughs) As if it were the most natural, normal thing in the world. 
And on the way home, I looked up the Heavenly Father and I said, Thanks, Dad, for teaching my son something about prayer. Now, these, these stories, they may be cute, but basically, what I want us to understand is, especially as adults, trusting in the invisible is really hard for us. We pretty much believe what we see, and now with Photoshop, how can we even believe that? Things, we live in this, this tangible world, and, and therefore we hold to what is tangible, and, and we're a little skeptical about what is invisible. And so this morning, as we prepare to open God's Word, I, I want us to wonder together, is there more Is there more than the eye can see? Can something that is unseen be even more real than what is seen? If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. We're back on Elisha after a couple of weeks away. We're back on Elisha. And I think this passage, if you haven't read it in a long time, may truly speak to your heart about trusting in what may be invisible. 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to look at verses 8 through 17. And the way we're going to do that this morning is not read through the entirety of the passage, but we're actually going to kind of take it chunk by chunk. And so I'll ask, just kind of keep keep your finger there in your Bible so that you can continue to refer back. It's also on your notes in your handout. Uh, you also have it up on the screen, so multiple ways that you can engage with God's Word. Let's hear what God's Word has to say. Now, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. That's the northern kingdom of Israel. And after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, the man of God being Elisha the prophet. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. You've got two kingdoms. You've got the Arameans and you've got the Israelites. Okay, they're, they're butting heads. They are in conflict, which took place a lot there and still takes place a lot there today, okay? There's, there's conflict going on. And the king of Aram kind of had an advantage, pretty big army. And so he would go trying to set up his camp in order to attack the people of Israel. But somehow, it seemed like Israel's king always knew where they were going to be. Now, I want to let you know something. King Jehoram, the king of Israel, he's not a good guy. He was not faithful to God whatsoever. The northern kingdom of Israel, they worshipped idols. They, they, they were messed up. And yet God was merciful. God was merciful. And he would send Elisha to warn the king of what was taking place. All right, let's pick on up then with verse 11. This enraged the king of Aram, and he summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers, but Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel. 
tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night, and they surrounded the city. Since every plan that the king of Aram came up with was known seemingly by the king of Israel so that they responded ahead of time to avoid the traps, the only logical explanation to the the king of Aram was that there was a spy in their midst. There was somebody who was finding out their plans and then getting word to King Jehoram of what was taking place so that Israel could respond and, and stay out of these traps that they were trying to set for them. Then one of the king's officers came up with another answer. The answer was, hey, there are no spies here. What you need to know is that there's a prophet named Elisha. And Elisha has such a connection with God that he even knows the words that you, king, speak in your bedchamber, in your bedroom. He even knows what's taking place there. There's nothing that's hidden from this God and from his prophet Elisha. And Elisha is the one who's going to the king to tell him what's going on so that he can avoid being trapped by us. And so the plan then is, let's take care of this Elisha character. So they find out where he is. He's in the city of Dothan. And it says that he sent a strong force there to capture him. That word is also translated as a massive army. In other words, the king of Aram is not fooling around. He's taking this threat seriously. He sends overwhelming force, chariots, horses, military of all kind, a massive army, shock and awe, in order to take care of Elisha. Okay, let's keep reading. Verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early in the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Picture this. You're in a city, overnight, an army has surrounded you. So you've got, you're surrounded, there's nowhere to go. Elisha's servant gets up that morning. I don't know what he was going to do. Maybe go out and start a fire to get the day going. Maybe he was going out to, to fetch water. Whatever it was, he got up before Elisha did. He went outside, and as he looked up from what he was doing, He did a 360. And it's like, uh-oh, we're in trouble. We're surrounded. I don't see any way that we can go and escape. And there are not only guys up there with spears and swords. There are horses and chariots, and they'll come charging down on us, and we are absolutely going to be slaughtered. So he goes to Elisha. Says, we've been found out. The gig is up. We're going to die. You know, this is it. And Elisha says to him, listen to this. Elisha says to him, 
Don't be afraid. How many times in God's word do we read that expression? Don't be afraid. You see, fear has been our constant companion ever since the Garden of Eden. Ever since Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and then went and hid in the bushes, fear has been our constant companion. And God is having to constantly remind us, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, you've got to think that Elisha's servant's thinking, dude, have you lost your mind? Don't be a, you didn't see what I just saw. When I went outside just a moment ago, didn't, did you hear what I said? All around us, I mean all around us, completely surrounding us, all around us, there's an army and they could charge down here at any moment and we are going to be slaughtered. And then Elisha drops the bomb. He says this. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I got to tell you the truth. This didn't make any sense to Elisha's servant. He knew the people in Dothan. He knew that this wasn't a military compound. This wasn't a fortress that could withstand an assault. They weren't outnumbering what he saw around him. So let's go on and read, beginning in verse 17. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and he looked, and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Based on what the servant could see, Based on his vision, might have been 2020, I don't know, much better than mine. Based on his vision, what he could see with his own eyes, the situation looked completely and utterly hopeless. The reality, however, was something far different from that. The truth was that the army of the Arameans was vastly outnumbered by the army of God. And now, with his eyes opened, the servant of Elisha looked and he saw that the hills were full of horses and chariots of fire. What does that mean? That means that they were aglow with the glory of God. And they were all around. Now, before we push on, I want us to think for a moment. Were the horses and chariots of fire there before the servant's eyes were opened? What do you think? Yeah. I mean, the indication is they were there all along. The servant simply could not see them there. That's why Elisha was just chilling in his tent. He had no issues at all. It's why he could say, hey, listen, don't be afraid. God's got this. Because he could see spiritually what his servant could not see. He knew spiritually what his servant did not know. That God had this under control. If the servant had never been able to see them, 
they would have still been there. Seeing was believing for the servant, but not seeing did not mean that the presence and the power of God weren't there. Folks, get this. You need to get this because this is often our issue. Many of us from our earliest years have heard the stories about God and about his faithfulness to his people. We have heard and maybe even memorized Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, those who've been called according to his purpose. We've heard that. We may have even taken it to heart. We know the words of the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still and restful waters. He he meets the need of my soul. And he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even... Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the valley of deepest darkness, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Most of us know these verses. We even believe these verses. We hear the echoes in our mind. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. But when we find ourselves in that dark valley, It's then that the doubts begin to creep in. Is he really there? Because I can't see him. And when I look around in my life, all I see is my problems. When I look around, all I see is what's against me. I don't see what's for me. And we know we ought not think like that, right? Because we've got Romans 8, 28. We've got the 23rd Psalm. We've got so many other verses that assure us. We know we ought not think about that. And so we try to make our walk match our talk. And so we go through our week. We walk along the parade route of our lives. We try to get all the confidence muster all the bravado we can, and even post things on Facebook about how good God is. And yet sometimes we wonder, am I really naked and alone? Is my faith no more real than the invisible clothes that the emperor was wearing on the street? And so I want to ask you this morning, what is the vast army that surrounds you? What is the giant that stands just across the stream cursing at you? What is it that you're secretly afraid of? 
There'll be a lot of answers in this building. For some, it's cancer. For some, it's dementia. For some of you, it's depression, abandonment, loneliness. For some, it's a lack of money. For others, it's rebellious children. Maybe it's a rocky marriage. I don't know the vast army that surrounds you. But I do know that many of us in this room can identify with Elisha's servant. It's easy to be afraid when all we see is our problems. How can we have real confidence that the Lord is with us, that his grace is sufficient, and that his power is more than enough? I want to tell you there is no one-size-fits-all, quick-fix-and-easy-steps answer to strengthening your faith. This is not an infomercial to tell you how in 30 days you can have a stronger faith. Most of us sitting here would say, you know what, if if I could just see the horses and chariots of fire, then I'd have a strong faith. What does scripture tell us? Hebrews 11, 1, we read, now faith is the confidence in what we hope for and the assurance of what we do not see. Would you read that verse with me this morning? It's right up here on the screen. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. So seeing is not necessarily believing. Many times believing comes before we ever see And sometimes believing comes even if we never see. So how can we have confidence in a God whom we can't see? I'd like to offer some biblical suggestions for you that might help you as you go through this walk of life that may help you to reinforce your faith. Remember, no quick fix. This is like trying to lose 50 pounds or like trying to train for a marathon. This is on the long haul. Don't don't say, hey, listen, Jimmy, I tried these things this week and it didn't work, so I'm just abandoning that. Can I encourage you? Stick with it. And here they are. First of all, be honest with your God and with yourself. That's a great place to start, isn't it? Be honest with God. Be honest with yourself about where you are, about your fears, about your doubts, about about those dark moments in your life when you really ask yourself, are you here, God? Be honest about it. One of the most beautiful statements in the New Testament that I come back to over and over and over and over again is is the words of a father who is bringing his son to Jesus. Jesus asked the father if he believed he could heal his son. 
And this was his answer. This is, look at this. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What a beautiful prayer, an honest prayer that we can go to God with. God, I do believe. I believe what you say in the 23rd Psalm that you're with me in the dark valley. I believe that what Jesus said about being with me always to the very end of the age, I believe all that. I believe, God, that you do have all this stuff in control and that you are working all these things together for good because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. God, I, I believe that, but help me. Help me where I don't believe. Help me where my faith is weak. Help me when the doubts come rushing in. Because, you see, denying your doubts does not make them go away. Tucking them in a shoebox and sticking them under the bed means they're still there. So can I encourage you to take the shoebox out and to sit down on the floor with God and begin to sift through those doubts and simply be honest with Him. I want to tell you something. God will not reject you because you come to Him with your fears and doubts. And it's not like he doesn't know anyway. So that's the first thing we want to do. We want to be honest with God and we want to be honest with ourselves about our our doubts, our concerns, our, our fears. Secondly, quit trying to pretend you've got it all figured out. This doesn't have anything to do with God and yourself. This has to do with how you respond and, and react to other people. Some of you remember this. It's not so much true today because... I would wear this on a, a, a Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or whatever day of the week it is, okay? But, but I grew up having Sunday clothes and Sunday shoes. I grew up having a, a section of my closet that was basically prohibited from touching until Sunday rolled around. And then I put those clothes on. I put the tie on, the, the shirt, the, the jacket, the polished shoes that always seemed like they were a bit too small. And I went to church. There was my church clothes. And I think some of us have this idea that when we show up at church, we need to have this facade, this, this front, this, this covering that says, hey, all's good. It's all good. Nothing to worry about. No problems. God's good. God's faithful. One of the most beautiful things you'll see, if if you've ever been here on a Thursday night for our Celebrate Recovery ministry, if you haven't, let me encourage you, just come check it out. What you will see on Thursday night is the varnish stripped away and people's lives just being completely open and honest before God and everybody else. And you'll hear people who will come to the microphone and they'll introduce themselves. Hi, I'm so-and-so. And and I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ who still struggles with whatever it is that they're struggling with. Wouldn't it be weird on Sunday morning? If on Sunday morning you went up and introduced yourself to people. Hi, I'm Jimmy Long. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ and I struggle with this, this, and this. We don't do that. Somebody started doing that, and you're like, I'm finding another church. We're not supposed to do that on Sundays. We're not supposed to have any problems. We're not supposed to have any doubts. We're not supposed to have any fears. We're supposed to conquer all that stuff and then show up to celebrate on Sunday morning. Well, hey, folks, we've got a lot to celebrate on Sunday morning, but I am most grateful that what I have to celebrate on Sunday morning is the grace and mercy of God in Jesus Christ. 
that I don't have to be perfect, but that I am being perfected in him. Third, remember God's faithfulness in the past. One of the reasons I think that God has given us so many stories of his faithfulness in the Bible is to remind us that he is faithful. And sometimes we need things that help us to remember. We need to sit down and listen to the story of our grandparents and our parents and our friends, how God has been faithful in their lives. We need to write down, we need to record how God has been faithful in our own lives. And we need to remember that. That's why when the children of Israel marched across the the Jordan River into the promised land, that Joshua had them gather stones, one for each tribe, and carry them from the middle of the Jordan to carry them across and to stack them up on the other side. And, and, and that's why these stones were lifted up and, and raised up and altars were built, so that when parents and grandparents would walk by with their children and grandchildren, they could say, do you see this stack of rocks here? It looks just like a stack of rocks to you, but let me tell you what God did here. When we remember that God has been faithful in the past, we need to also remember that he doesn't change. God doesn't change. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes, If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. In other words... Faithfulness is a characteristic of God that will not change. And so we need to remember that. We need to reflect on God's faithfulness in the past. We're in the dark valley today. Fourth, ask God to open your eyes to see what he's doing. I'm not saying he's going to do it every time, but I just want to encourage you. When you don't understand... Ask God to give you enlightenment. When you lack wisdom, ask God to give you wisdom. Open my eyes, God, so I can see what's taking place. A simple prayer might sound something like this. God, I have no clue what's going on right now. I see no way out of the situation I'm in right now. I feel completely trapped. I feel completely hopeless. I cannot see you in the middle of my mess. God, open my eyes so I can see. I want to see. Just give me a glimpse. And then lastly, when you can't see God, even when you've asked, when you can't see God, be willing to trust that he's still there. The flaming horses and chariots were were gathered around, surrounding the Aramean army long before the servant ever saw them. When we cannot see God, when we cannot sense his presence or see his power, will we still trust that he is there and that he is able? I love the words from the hymn, On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. That's our life. That's where we live sometimes, and that's where some of you are living right now. When darkness hides the face of God, I still rest 
on his grace that never, ever changes. Is that true for you this morning? Does that statement reflect your heart? When all that is visible in your life is your problems. Can you still trust in a God who is invisible? I want to tell you, we worship a God who is real. And who's really here this morning. And if you need him. And you do need him. He's ready to meet you here today. Some of you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never had that. But the greatest act of God's faithfulness was to give his son as an atoning sacrifice for your sin, to pay the price for your sin, and then to raise him up on the third day to give us life eternal. The Bible says that if you trust in that, if you cling to that, if that becomes your story, then you too can have eternal life. Be able to spend an eternity with God in heaven. If you need that this morning, God's waiting for you. Some of you need a church home, a place to belong, a place to connect, a place to grow, to be encouraged, to be challenged. God's calling you to make Grace Fellowship that home. This is your time. But you know, some of you may just need to come today to be honest with God. To let Him know that you do believe. Sometimes your faith seems to be built on sand and not rock. The doubts tend to overwhelm you. That you've been knocked off your stride, knocked to your knees. When you're on your knees, the best thing to do is to pray. And that may simply need to be what you do today. Whatever it is the Lord is calling you to, this is your time. Respond to him. Let's pray. Father God, a story from a long time ago still speaks to us today. For many of us are like Elisha's servant. But Father, we'd like to leave here being more like Elisha. Trusting you, having confidence in you, having a boldness to live our lives following you, knowing that you will never leave us and never forsake us, that you'll be with us always to the very end of the age, and then you'll take us home to know that you're faithful and true, that your grace is sufficient, and that your power is made perfect, made complete, even when we're weak. Father, I pray for those who need to respond to you in some way today that you will not allow pride or anything else to stand in the way. For this is my prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen.